Joel chapter 2. The text for the sermon will be the last part of this chapter, which is the portion of the book of Joel that the Apostle Peter quoted on Pentecost morning to explain what was happening when 120 disciples emerged from an upper room and began speaking in tongues and declaring the mighty works of God and everybody in Jerusalem who was there for the Feast of Pentecost witnessed this and they were wondering what's going on and Peter says this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel in Joel 2. Just to give a little bit of explanation about what was going on in Joel's day so many, many years before the time of Peter and the time of Pentecost, the prophet Joel was prophesying in Jerusalem, in Judah, in the aftermath of a devastating plague of locusts that had just come through and wiped out the fields and the crops of the people. So in the aftermath of that, Joel comes, and you can kind of see that there's some imagery relating to that as we read this chapter. Uh, so let's read the Word of God in Joel 2. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained, all faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men, they shall climb the wall like men of war, and they shall march every one on his ways, and they shall not break their ranks." Neither shall one thrust another, they shall walk every one in his path, and when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They, they shall run to and fro in the city, they shall run upon the wall, they shall climb up upon the houses, they shall enter in at the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is thy God? Then will the Lord be jealous for his land, and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. But I will remove far off from you the northern army, and will drive him into a land barren and desolate, with his face toward the east sea, and his hinder part toward the utmost sea. And his stink shall come up, and his ill savor shall come up, because he hath done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, 
for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. For the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. And the, the remaining verses are the text of the sermon and I will just read this the one time. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So far we read in the word of God. May the Lord bless that reading to our hearts this morning. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, living in our modern and industrial age, I think it's difficult for us to imagine the kind of fear that a plague of locusts brought upon an ancient place like Judah. The people who lived in Judah in the Old Testament were people who lived off the land. That means their life revolved around plowing the fields, sowing the grain, waiting for their crop, and then harvesting the crop. To lose the crop was to lose bread to put on the table for your children. It was to lose your livelihood. It was devastating. The buzzing of a swarm of locusts can be heard from a long ways away, and it sounds like the marching of an army. When it arrives, the air becomes so thick with them that you could be standing outside in mid-afternoon and the sun will be darkened. There was nothing for it but to watch as all of the work of that season was eaten by the locusts, the caterpillars, the palmer worms, eaten down to the roots and destroyed. And then the swarm would move on to another place, leaving nothing in its wake but dust. It was in circumstances like these that the prophet Joel came into Judah proclaiming the word of God that later was written down in this book. This was the worst plague of locusts, apparently, that ever came to Judah previous chapter, Joel 1 verse 10 says, the field is wasted, the land mourneth, for the corn is wasted, the new wine is dried up, the oil languisheth. Be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen, howl, O ye vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. People were walking around in a daze trying to figure out what had just happened to them and what it meant. Then the prophet shows up and he calls them to repent for their sins that had brought this judgment upon them from the Lord. That's verse 13 of the chapter that we read. Rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God. And as Judah repents, 
So the Lord will show mercy to his people who call upon him. He will send the rain and a new crop of the wine and the oil. Verse 24. And the floor shall be full of wheat and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. In verse 25. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. Judah will know that the God who sends judgment on sin is also the God who forgives and shows mercy to his people. But the deliverance that God will give, that Joel is prophesying, in the immediate context of the plague of locusts, will be an Old Testament-styled deliverance. It will be a deliverance of food and drink. It will be a deliverance of recovered losses. That is why it's significant when the prophet's next words, which are the first words of our text, are these words. And it shall come to pass afterward. So there's this great plague of locusts that God sent due to the sins of God's people. The prophet calls them to repentance. And in the way of repentance, God will restore to them the years that the locust hath eaten. But then it shall come to pass afterwards. Afterward points ahead to a new thing that the Lord is going to do. Long ahead in the future. It will be a new thing that involves a whole new level of judgment upon the world. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. But it will also be a new thing that reveals a whole new level of the grace of God to his people. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit So I call our attention this morning to this text, this prophecy of Joel, and the theme are those words of the Lord that Joel proclaimed, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. First, we will identify the wonder of grace that this will be, the pouring out of God's spirit on all flesh. Secondly, the judgment of God that will accompany this act of pouring out of his spirit, and then finally, the salvation of God's people that the the prophet concludes with in verse 32. So I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, first the wonder, second the judgment, finally the salvation. The wonder spoken of by the prophet is this promise of God that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now let's look at several dimensions of this wonder so that we can understand exactly what Joel is prophesying here. The wonder of this promise, first of all, has to do with what God promises to pour out upon his people. Now think of the huge relief it was when God restored to the people in Joel's day the harvest that the locusts had eaten. The destruction of the crop was not only a terrible calamity that brought famine upon Judah and took bread from the tables of their children, but it was a judgment that God sent on account of their sins. They had been unfaithful to him. They had been living in idolatry, and so God sent the locusts. It was God frowning upon them, God disciplining them. When the harvest was restored then, As the people heard the prophecy of Joel and repented of their sins, God was saying, I forgive you. And that was a huge relief, not only to have bread on their tables again, but to have that restored sense that God was with them, that God forgave them, that God was merciful to them. Yet God promises a day is coming when he will pour out more than wine and oil. I will pour out not just the wine and the oil so that your tables have bread for your children, but I will pour out my spirit. 
What God is promising to do here is to pour out himself upon his people and to dwell with them. That's what the Spirit is. The Spirit he is talking about is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ poured out on Pentecost. In other words, what God is promising to do here is to come personally by his Spirit to rest upon his people and to dwell with his people and in his people and to fill them with all spiritual blessings. And that's a greater blessing than the blessing of wheat and wine and oil. That's why the prophet speaks of this as the ultimate blessing that God gives to his people. Oh, you think it's a good thing when God restores to you the years that the locust hath eaten? Well, just wait until afterward. Wait until afterward when God himself comes personally and pours out his spirit upon you. That will be the ultimate blessing. That will be the ultimate harvest for the church. That, by the way, is what Pentecost was in the Old Testament. Pentecost was the harvest festival. It was the day of receiving all that God has laid in store for his people as the harvest is gathered in and then thanking God for giving those blessings. Well, that feast of Pentecost, that harvest festival was fulfilled when the Lord Jesus Christ ascended up to his place at the right hand of God and then poured out the true harvest of the Spirit and the blessings of salvation upon his people. The pouring out of the Spirit was the pouring out of all of the blessings that Jesus Christ earned on the cross. It was the pouring out of righteousness. It was the pouring out of holiness and spiritual joy in Christ. It was the church harvesting in, gathering in, True hope, peace with God, the power of a renewed Christian life. Or you could sum it all up by just saying that God came to dwell personally with his people by the Spirit. The second dimension of this wonder is that the Spirit, Joel says, or God says through Joel, the Spirit will be poured out Now we're familiar with that expression, but that would have struck God's people in Old Testament Israel in a particular way. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was there, and the believers knew who the Spirit was. We sang a psalm that was written in the Old Testament period that spoke of the Spirit, the Spirit of Jehovah who makes life to abound. God's people understood it was the Spirit who gave life to their crops, who made the wine that they drank to be sweet. It was the Spirit who spoke to them through the prophets, like Joel, who was coming and proclaiming the Word of God to them. That's what prophecy is. To prophesy is to bubble over with the Spirit and to declare the Word of God. But there was always a sense in the Old Testament in which the Spirit was coming in small measures. The work of the Spirit is the work of revealing the mind of God and particularly revealing the mind of God as it pertains to the redemption and salvation of His people. And the Spirit did that in the Old Testament, but He always did it in threads and pieces. The people of God were always left in a state of tension because the revelation of the mind of God pertaining to redemption and salvation was not yet complete. It was always in little pieces here and there. An analogy that's sometimes used is that in the Old Testament, the Spirit came as a trickle. Think of a little trickle coming out of the faucet when you turn it on just a little bit. That was the Spirit coming in the Old Testament. So when the Lord says through Joel, I will pour out my spirit, there's a change being indicated. To pour out is not to trickle. To pour out is the difference between the kitchen faucet and a fire hydrant. The pouring out of the spirit is the spirit now coming in all of his fullness, 
in all of his power upon the church. He's not holding back anything anymore. Now why the change? Why didn't the Spirit always come in that level of fullness? Why the trickle in the Old Testament? Well, the change takes place because in Christ, all of those little pieces and threads that were there present in the Old Testament finally are tied together. All the prophetic words that the Spirit spoke in Joel and Amos and Micah and Jonah are fulfilled when Christ comes. All the types and the shadows that were there in the tabernacle and in the priesthood and in the kings are fulfilled and perfected when Christ comes. All those things that the Spirit was doing in the Old Testament, a little here and a little there, come together in the ministry of the Messiah. And now when the Messiah is ascended up to the right hand of God, that's the linchpin that pulls it all together. And with that linchpin in place, the Spirit can open up. He can go to work revealing all of the fullness of God and His redemptive purposes in Jesus Christ, holding back nothing. I will pour out my Spirit. And then there's the final dimension of this wonder, which is that the Spirit will be poured out not on one or two or a few, but I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. This also would have struck the people Joel was speaking to in a particular way. We are familiar with the fact that all of God's people in the church partake of the Spirit and are in the office of a believer. But in the Old Testament, it wasn't that way. Just consider the very situation that was unfolding in Joel. Here was Joel, a prophet. He's the one who has the Spirit. And here's all of the people who have just gone through this calamity. How do they have access to the Spirit? It's through the prophet, like Joel and Amos and the others. Prophets were the ones who prophesied. Prophets were the ones who had visions and dreamed dreams. Kings and priests had the Spirit also to carry out their offices, but not just everybody had the Spirit in that official sense. So when Joel says, all flesh, that's a significant change. Now it's important to understand when Joel does say all flesh, he's not talking about all human beings head for head who have ever lived or whoever will live. That, w- that idea would have been foreign to God's people in Judah, in the Old Testament. These were people who, when they looked around, saw heathen nations like Moab and Syria and Ammon, and they understood those were God's enemies. Those are the heathen, the idolaters. When in the Old Testament the Spirit was poured out on somebody like David, the effect was that he went to war against God's enemy, Goliath, upon whom the Spirit was not and never would be because he was God's enemy. So all flesh does not mean universally all human beings. But what all flesh indicates is that now it will not just be Joel. Now it will not just be David. Now it will not just be Moses and Aaron. But it will be your sons who prophesy and your daughters. It will be your young men who dream dreams, and your old men who see visions. I will pour out my Spirit on all of you. You will all bear office, including the lowliest of you, the servants and the handmaids. All will be priests. All will be kings. All will be prophets, for all will have the Spirit. The effect of this wonder, then, is that all upon whom the Spirit is poured out, will prophesy. In the Old Testament, you didn't have every believer prophesying. But in the New Testament age, every believer will prophesy. To understand what that means, we have to be clear what prophecy is. There's a lot of misunderstandings about prophecy And probably the most common misunderstanding is that prophecy just means to say something about the future. And of course, there are prophecies that tell the future. In the Old Testament, there were 
prophetic words that spoke very exactly about future events. Think of Isaiah identifying by name Cyrus as the one who would deliver God's people out of the Babylonian captivity. And this was hundreds of years before Cyrus was ever born. Sometimes prophecy does speak to the future and gets very specific. But that's not all prophecy is. Another misunderstanding about prophecy is that it's always mysterious and mystical. And again, in the Old Testament, often this was the case. Prophecy was given in dreams and visions, and there was something mysterious about it. And now some Christians in the church world today say that that's the way it has to be in the New Testament as well. For the Pentecostal Christian, the understanding is you only know that you have the Spirit if you have dreams and you see visions You have to have a second baptism in the Spirit. It's not good enough just to be baptized the first time with water, but you have to have the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that baptism of the Holy Spirit will be manifest when you have revelations and dreams and visions and speaking in tongues and all of these other signs. But that's not what prophecy is. The root idea of prophecy is not telling the future. It's not something mysterious or mystical. To prophesy is simply to be filled with the Spirit of Christ and then to speak His Word. Children, think of what happens when you take a balloon and you breathe into that balloon and it expands and gets full of your air, your breath. And then you let go and all the air comes out and it makes a noise, it makes a sound. Well, when God pours out his spirit, another word for spirit is breath. The Holy Spirit is the breath of God. When God pours out his spirit on his church, it's like he's filling the church up with his breath, with his air, like a balloon. Then there's an effect. And what is the effect? Well, it's not a funny noise that comes out of the church, like that comes out of a balloon, but the church begins to speak, begins to to prophesy, it begins to make a noise. And the noise that it makes, the, the sound that it sounds out, is the words of the Spirit, the words of God. And if you read the story of Pentecost in Acts 2, you'll discover that that's exactly what happened. Now, on Pentecost morning, there were some strange signs that took place. They spoke in tongues. There were these cloven tongues of fire that landed on everybody's head, and there was that sound of the rushing mighty wind, and that all sounds strange to us. It had a purpose at the time. But the main thing that happened on Pentecost was not the cloven tongues of fire or the sound of the rushing wind or the speaking in other languages as such. The main thing that happened is what we read about in Acts 2, verse 11. Acts 2 Verse 11, so you have all of these people who had come to the festival, the Pentecost festival. They were from all over the Roman Empire. Jews from all the different areas. They had gone on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and there they are. They all spoke all these different languages. And what do they say as these 120 believers come out and they begin to speak in tongues? They say, we do hear them all speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying to one another, What meaneth this? And others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. But they heard the wonderful works of God. In other words, the 120 believers who were filled with the Spirit were prophesying. And what is it that they were prophesying? It's not that they were telling the future. It's not that they were saying strange things that only a few people could understand. No, they were speaking about Christ. They were speaking about everything that had just happened in the land of Palestine that everybody had witnessed, but now these 120 disciples filled with the Spirit began to explain it. They spoke of his life and his death, his suffering, his resurrection, his ascension. They spoke about all the purposes of God that were being fulfilled here and what it means. It means salvation. 
So why does Joel speak of dreams and visions then? Well, let's not overlook the fact that there were, there were dreams and visions, especially in the early days of the New Testament. There were special signs and wonders that took place. There was one vision in particular that we're very familiar with. It's called the Book of Revelation. But we also have to understand that dreams and visions come in the context of Joel's prophecy. And who are the people that Joel is talking to? Joel is not talking to people who have this. They don't have a bound copy of the 66 books of the Bible. They don't have the New Testament because it hadn't happened yet. There were a few books, the books of Moses, some of the Psalms, some of the other prophets that had been written down. But these were not people who were generally speaking literate. They had access to the Word of God when the priest or the Levite came around with a scroll and opened it up and read it to them. And otherwise, when the Word of God came to them, it came to them from the prophet who spoke as he received visions and dreams so Joel is speaking in the language of the experience of God's people in the Old Testament who were familiar with the words of God coming to them in the form of visions and dreams. That doesn't make it less impressive when Joel's prophecy is fulfilled, not by people literally necessarily receiving dreams and visions, but rather by little children gathering around the table and doing something that never could have happened in the Old Testament, which is reading the gospel of Jesus Christ, seeing the Lord in action, working for the redemption of sinners, working for their redemption, and they have access to it in the word of God. The full mind and counsel of God concerning redemption laid bare before them. The problem with hungering for sensational things like dreams and visions is that it takes for granted the simple wonder of Scripture and the gospel that is contained in it. And that's what Joel was talking about when he said, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Little children in the catechism room will learn about Jesus Christ, learn about the work of the Spirit and will speak of those things and prophesy of those things. Mothers and fathers will prophesy of the Spirit through the Spirit of Jesus Christ as they explain the Word of God to their children. That's a wonder. But the pouring out of the Spirit comes alongside of judgment. Joel doesn't only speak of the wonder of the Spirit being poured out, but he speaks of other wonders in verse 30. Wonders that reveal a judgment of God. And I will show wonders in the heaven and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. That plague of locusts had been a foreshadowing of this future judgment. I don't know if you remember this, but back in 2020, uh, there were swarms of locusts in eastern Africa that passed through and did a lot of damage. There were a lot of things going on in 2020, so maybe that's one news report that you missed. Uh, but with a little research, I discovered that these swarms, some of them were as large as 400 square miles Massive swarms of locusts and billions of locusts in them who were eating enough crops in a day to feed small nations. Devastating affliction that took place in the modern era. Now, think of how the language of the sun darkening would sound to people who had witnessed something like that. 
billions and billions of locusts covering many hundreds of square miles. They're all in the air and they're on the ground. They're everywhere coming in through the windows. You go outside and you look up. It's like a haze is covering the sun. When this happened in Judah, it felt like one of the ten plagues of Egypt was being directed against them. So that was the judgment that they had just gone through. But Joel says that afterward, there will be an even greater judgment. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. These are signs of judgment in the earth. And blood and fire and pillars of smoke are also signs that the people in Judah and the Old Testament would have been familiar with. If you see a pillar of smoke rising off in the distance, that's a sure sign that there's a village over there and it's burning. And if you go a little bit closer to where the smoke comes, you'll see the actual flames burning the houses and the homes of the people who live there. If you get a little bit closer, you'll find the blood of the people who had just been slain. Blood and fire and smoke are signs of plundering armies that are moving through the countryside, just like the locusts had moved through the countryside, devouring the crops. Now there are armies of men going with their weapons and their firebrands, killing and plundering and destroying. So there's an intensifying of the judgment that Joel is referring to here. A plague of locusts is a terrible thing, but it's worse when a hostile, armor, hostile army comes and destroys your homes, and kills your family, and steals your possessions. And that's why, earlier in the chapter, you almost can't tell what he's talking about. Is he talking about locusts, or is he talking about an army? The appearance of them, verse 4, is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run, like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains, shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devours the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array, before their face the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. They shall march every one on his ways, and they shall not break their ranks. It sounds like a poetic description of locusts, but then there's the intensification. Like those locusts, there will be men, armies, who come and rampage through the countryside. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. And then there are signs in the heaven. Signs where not only the sun will be obscured by the swarms of locusts, but the sun will be actually turned into blackness and the moon will turn to blood. It's one thing when there are signs in the earth that signal death and destruction and war. It's another thing when the heavenly bodies themselves, which are out of the access of men, start to fall to pieces when the stars fall from the heavens. The New Testament picks up on some of this imagery when it signals what's going to happen in the end of the world. Jesus speaks of the sun darkening and the stars falling from heaven in Matthew 24 before his return. And the book of Revelation says that the sun will become black as sackcloth of hair and the moon will become blood in Revelation 6. So these are not just random acts of violence from the rampaging nations, but these are signs that involve the judgment of God. When God put the sun in the sky and the moon in the heavens, he did it because it was supposed to be a good thing, a blessing. He's creating a home for human beings to live in. But when he takes the light of the sun away, when he turns the moon into blood, that's a sign that God's not happy with men anymore. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke like the locusts signal God's wrath against sinful human beings. These are judgments that increase and intensify over time. So here's the question we might be wondering about. What does all this have to do with the pouring out of the Spirit? When you read Acts 2... And Peter preaching on Pentecost morning, you don't read of the sun going dark. You don't read of the moon turning to blood. So what's the connection? 
the connection is we have to see these judgments described in verses 30 and 31 as the effect of the outpouring of the Spirit and the prophetic ministry of the church. Prophecy and judgment are always connected. The coming of judgment is an effect of prophecy that is heard and then ignored. That's why the locusts came to Judah. The locusts did not come to Judah because the people were ignorant of the will and mind of God. The locusts came to Judah because they knew very well what God said, and they ignored it and disobeyed it, and then God judged and disciplined them. The calling, therefore, was to repent, rend your heart and not your garments, and God in mercy will restore what the locusts have eaten. Well, why does Joel then go on to speak of blood and fire and pillars of smoke? What Joel is saying is, blood and fire and pillars of smoke is what's in the future for Judah, should Judah ignore the prophecy that I am bringing right here, right now? Should Judah refuse to rend their hearts? Should Judah refuse to repent and turn to the Lord? There will be even greater judgments on the horizon. And you know your Old Testament history, and you know that that's exactly what happened. The armies of the Assyrians and the armies of Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the villages and took the people away in captivity. But what about afterward? What about when the Spirit is poured out on all flesh? Well, think about it. If it's bad enough when you have one prophet, Joel, proclaiming the Word of God, and they ignore him, there's just a trickle of the Spirit, and then he's ignored, and God judges that. What if you have an entire nation of prophets What if you have God pouring out his spirit on all flesh so that it's not just one man like Joel, but it's your young men and your daughters and your sons and the old men and everybody's prophesying the will and the mind of the Lord. And then that's ignored. Then what happens? Well, that's when the judgment of God will be unleashed upon the world in ways that has never been seen before. That's when the entire world will be swept off into the battle of Armageddon. That's when the entire creation will fall to pieces and the stars will fall from heaven and the moon will turn to blood. That's when all of the people will be summoned into the valley of decision. That's the next chapter of Joel. And they will face the sentence of God. And the elements will melt with a fervent heat. So the point of Joel in mentioning these judgments is not that they happened on the very day that the Spirit was poured out. The point is that when the Spirit was poured out, this was the beginning of a great period of prophecy. The great period of prophecy is the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament age. It's when the white horse runs and the gospel is preached, and that will continue until the world ends. But what the text is saying is that this prophecy that is done through the church that has a spirit poured out upon it, will be the means that God uses, in fact, to bring the world to its end. As men respond to the word of God with unbelief and hard hearts, the cup of iniquity will fill, and God will respond as he must respond, in justice and judgment. And that's what's going on today, beloved. Joel sees this all from a distance as one event. But we live right in the middle of it. Maybe nearing the end of it. If you hear of blood and fire and smoke in the world today, if you hear of wars and rumors of wars, mass killings, plagues, desolations, these things are not disconnected from the church and her mission. It's directly connected to it. It's God bringing judgment on the world that rejects his Christ, whom he has set at his right hand. It's sobering. But that's what Joel is teaching. And what that should do is it should intensify the urgency of the prophetic call to faith 
and repentance to seek and to find salvation in the church by faith in Christ. All of this talk of judgment does not mean that there's no hope or that there is no place of refuge. The prophet says there shall be deliverance. In Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord hath said and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Mount Zion and Jerusalem are referring to the same thing. It's that city that was built on a hill surrounded by walls that had the palace of the king and the temple at its highest point. And in the Old Testament, Zion and Jerusalem represent the church, particularly the visible instituted ministry of the church where the message of redemption is to be found and where it is proclaimed. Now, if you just think about that, it might seem like a strange thing. Why would you go to a city with walls in order to find refuge from a locust plague? You can flee to Zion for refuge from the locusts, but that's not going to change the fact that the locusts are going to swarm in on your fields and they're going to eat your crops. Nevertheless, Zion is the place where God's people find refuge from all of these judgments and all these plagues. And the reason is not because Zion is such a strong stronghold. The reason is because God is there in Zion. The reason deliverance shall be found in Zion and in Jerusalem is because that's where God's house is. That's where God lives. And God is the one who will deliver his people from judgment. The God who sends the plague of locusts is the God who is able to restore what the locusts have eaten. church might also seem like a silly place to find refuge from the judgments of the last days. What is the church? Can you even put it on a map? Can you count up its assets in comparison to all of the big institutions and organizations of the world today? Isn't it much safer somewhere else? How's it going to help me to be in the church when I look up at night and I see the stars are falling from heaven? How's it going to help me to be in the church when all around me the nations are crumbling to pieces and going to war and me and my family are caught in the middle of it all? Yet the word of the Lord is, in the church you will find salvation. Salvation from the plagues and the judgments and that's because God lives in the church. The church is his body, which he loves, and for which he gave his life. It was for the church, not for any other body, group, institution in the world, but for the church that Jesus freely accepted all of the judgments of God on himself and endured them, though he himself was innocent. You remember children, don't you? When Jesus hung on the cross, the sun was darkened over his head. Everything became blackness and darkness as the judgments of God were poured out on him. He did that for the church. And because he did that, there can be no judgment of God for the church. The church becomes an island of safety in the midst of all of these other calamities that unfold in the world. The Lord pours his spirit upon his church, sends her as his messenger and as his witness in the world. The prophetic word that the church must proclaim then is what Joel says. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. The prophetic message of the church that she proclaims by the power of the spirit is there's judgment coming. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. There's judgment coming. And if you don't believe that, then you don't understand the seriousness with which God takes sin. There's judgment coming. But there's also salvation. There is salvation in Zion for all who call upon the Lord. They shall be saved. So call upon him. 
call upon him. Rend your hearts before him. As you understand the, the seriousness and the weight of your own sins, rend your hearts before him and call upon the Lord as the only one who can deliver you, as the only one who can keep you safe as the very world itself crumbles beneath your feet. And know assuredly that the Lord will answer your call with salvation. And know the very fact that you do rend your heart that you do call upon the Lord is a sure indicator that the Spirit has been poured out upon you. The Spirit is with you. And He will gather and He will save His church. Believe, beloved, the promise of the Lord that He speaks to us this morning through His prophet Joel. It shall come to pass afterward. I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And all who call upon the name of the Lord in Zion shall be saved. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for this revelation of thy justice and truth and righteousness as thou dost judge sin, but also of thy mercy and of thy grace as thou art a God who forgives and who restores the years that the locust hath eaten, and who pours out thy spirit, not just upon one or two, but on all flesh, upon the smallest and the greatest, the weakest and the strongest within thy church. And we pray, O Father, that thou wilt continue to equip and enable the church to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ boldly and faithfully, and we pray, O oh Father, that thou wilt call forth out of the darkness of this world thy own people to find refuge and safety in the church through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they may find salvation. And we pray, O oh Father, that this promise of thy word will be fulfilled in us and in our children and in our young men and in our old men. Forgive, Father, our sins as we rend our hearts before Thee. Forgive and show us the way of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.